Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, focusing on the unity of the church. And over the last year and a half, or even more than that, we have seen a great divide within our country. D differences of opinion on who to vote for, how to live and function as a society in the midst of a pandemic has divided us. Should we go into lockdown or not? What news sources are credible? Do masks actually work? We have tribes forming of people who are pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine. We have those who are worried about a virus that could potentially kill them and then those who aren't as compassionate towards those who are concerned. All of us have experienced loss in this last year and a half, whether that be a loved one, a job, a normal school experience, time with extended family. These things have fractured our relationships and caused division. And it's interesting how our society prides itself on tolerance and being inclusive. And yet within that same system of thought, there is much exclusion. And unfortunately, this has bled into the church. Sadly, there are many churches that are not unified. We have brought these points of difference into the local church and allowed them to separate us and cause division. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you can't have an opinion. It's perfectly fine to have an opinion and think differently than others. We all come from different backgrounds and are in different stages of life. And this is part of the beauty of the church, the diversity of the church, the fact that God can take completely different people and unite them in one thing, in Jesus. But we too often let bitterness, pride, idolatry, envy, gossip, judgmentalism divide us. This is true of us and was true of the Ephesian church to which Paul was writing this letter. Unity is not an option for a believer. Unity is not an option for a believer. If we have been reconciled and united to God and to each other through Jesus, then shouldn't our lives reflect that unity? Since we are the body of Christ, we should be unified, not divided. In our passage this morning, we will see that our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. Let's read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Show us areas in which we need to grow as we seek to walk in the unity that we have in Christ. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, and that you would change us through your word and by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme I want you to see in these six verses, the main point of this sermon is this. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. This is important because we often forget the unity that we have with one another in Christ. And also we fail at living out this unity within the church. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. In these verses, Paul will help us see three things. The first is the need for unity. The second is the walk of unity. And the third, the basis of unity. But first, the need for unity. Let's take a look at verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Chapter four is significant in this letter to the Ephesians because it marks a moment of transition. Paul has just spent the first three chapters explaining what God has done. He talks about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, such as our election, our adoption, our redemption. He goes on and on and on about the grace that God has towards those who are in Christ. He prays for them. And then in chapter two, he addresses the Gentiles. The Ephesian church was a diverse church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, groups that were at odds with one another. And Paul reminds the Gentiles that at one time they were separated from God and his people, but now can be united to Christ through faith and be united with his people. Gentiles are fellow heirs and share in the promises of the gospel. They are members of the same body. Both Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. But Jews and Gentiles had completely different customs and values. The difference in their opinions and preferences was massive. But Paul writes, I therefore, he's referring to all of this, everything that he's written down so far in his letter. He has laid the groundwork of theology by explaining what God has done and now is transitioning to explain to the Ephesians and to us the response of the believer to what God has done, how we should live, what we should do. Paul describes himself as a 
prisoner for the Lord. He is suffering for the gospel. He's writing this letter while imprisoned in Rome. But he's not saying, I am a prisoner because he wants sympathy or he wants rescue from his situation. He's saying that there's a cost to living a faithful Christian life. But also notice that Paul says that he is a prisoner for the Lord, not a prisoner of Rome. He is submitting to the will of God and urging us to do the same. And so he urges the Ephesians, he begs them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. The theme of walking is all throughout Paul's letter. He uses this word walk as a metaphor to explain how we should behave, how we should live. And so he's urging the Ephesians to live out the Christian life, a life submitted to God and reflective of his grace. And this word walk is not speaking of a one and done transaction such as justification. This is a command and it refers to a continual, daily, every moment type of living. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Worthy means fitting or appropriate. We must walk in a way that is appropriate or fitting to who we are in Jesus. But sometimes this is often misunderstood and neglected. Paul isn't saying that we are called because we are worthy. No, it's just the opposite. The calling to which we are called is all of grace. Since he has chosen you and redeemed you and adopted you into his family and united you to him and to each other, you have been called out of the world into the family of God, the body of Christ, the church. You should live in a manner that reflects this grace that you have received. And so Paul is encouraging the Ephesians and he is encouraging us to live worthy, to walk worthy. Take a look at verse three. I know I'm skipping over verse two. We'll get to it. But take a look at verse three. In this passage, we will get the major emphasis for this need of unity. Look at verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that this verse gives us the assumption that unity isn't seen all the time in the church. And if we're honest with one another, we can agree with that, right? Paul is urging for the Ephesians to maintain unity. That means that there were issues in the church. There were divisions in the church. And this isn't unique to the Ephesian church. The Corinthian church was a mess. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you but that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
Paul is urging them to get rid of the divisions among them and be unified in the things that are important. There were issues in Ephesus. There were issues in Corinth. And if we're honest enough, we have issues as well. Think of how the world views the church sometimes. A place of conflict, scandal, infighting. Think of how some of us speak of the church. Christ's bride. Think of how we speak of the church or how, how we treat other members in our congregation. One glance at Christian Twitter, someone might think that we actually hate each other. They will think we're not unified. So maintenance is needed. Paul says be eager to maintain. And if maintenance is needed, then that means that something breaks down. Something needs repair. But we must be clear on what breaks down. The unity that we have in Christ is indestructible. It cannot be broken. Notice that Paul doesn't say be eager to create unity. He says be eager to maintain the unity that you already have. The unity that you already have in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we maintain this unity through the bond of peace. And also notice that this unity is described as the unity of the spirit. It's a unity that is secured by Christ and given to us by the spirit. It is the unity of the spirit. We already have unity between one another. There is this spiritual unity that we share in Christ. But Paul is urging us to maintain it and make it visible in the lives that we live. John Stott, a famous theologian, says, we should be demonstrating to the world that the unity we say exists is not a sick joke, but a true and glorious reality. And it is. It is a true and glorious reality. Here's an analogy. Take a look at a married couple who are fighting and at odds with one another. From the outside, outside appearances would look like there's no unity. But in fact, because of their marriage bond, they are still united. Only the visibleness of their marriage is fractured. The union as a married couple is still intact. And what would we do if we were involved in their lives and we saw that happening? What would we do? We would urge them to maintain the unity that they already have. This is what Paul is telling the Ephesians, Ephesian church. That's what Paul is telling us this morning to maintain the unity that you already have. If this unity already exists by what the Spirit has done, then we must be committed to preserving it. Do you see the need for unity? 
So we have seen the unity in verses 1 and 3. And now we will turn to, to verse 2 and see the walk of unity. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy? What characteristics does God emphasize for those who are to be unified? Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These traits are similar to the ones that Paul gives in Colossians 3, 12 through 15, who are going through similar things. And as you look at this list, you can't help but notice that all these things have to do with our relationships with one another. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. But Paul begins with humility. There's probably a reason why humility is first. Because it's hard. The opposite to humility is pride. Pride is something that our culture values and it is a sin that we all are guilty of committing on a daily basis. We think of ourselves first and then others second. This is something specific to our time and our culture. Paul is encouraging unity during the time that this letter was written. And during that time, humility was despised. We are a self-centered people and we always have been. We seek respect, recognition, and authority, and we will do whatever it takes to get there. Paul confronted the Philippian church about this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we consider others over ourselves, we lay aside our agenda and we serve them. Pride creates disunity. Humility promotes unity. Believers should be the most humble people because our inclusion into the church, into God's family, our calling has nothing to do with what we have done. It's all of grace. We should be a humble people. Humility brings about unity. And the next characteristic that Paul lists is gentleness. Think about the opposite of gentleness. Someone who is harsh and violent. We could see why Paul lists gentleness in this list when he's thinking about unity. But gentleness can be misunderstood. It can also be translated as meekness. And a lot of commentators that I read, they, they said meek doesn't mean weak. 
A gentle person isn't someone who is weak. It's not someone who evades conflict. The word gentleness or meekness literally means power under control. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, described gentleness as being in between excessive anger about everything and then never being angry. Gentleness is in the middle between those two. Someone who is gentle has a massive amount of self-control. They have the ability to be angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. How are you doing at being a gentle person? With this definition, we all have to conclude that we have work to do and we cannot be gentle on our own. And so with God's help through the Holy Spirit, we must pursue being gentle towards others. But think about how helpful this quality could be to the unity of the church. Someone who is gentle has the ability to care for someone in their deep need and yet at the same time be a protector if it's needed. We, meet, we need gentle people in the church. Are you harsh with people? Is your power, is your anger under control? And these two qualities, humility and gentleness, are how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11. He says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is both gentle and lowly, gentle and humble. Think of Jesus' power that was under control as he lived amongst sinners like you and me. He cared for the weak and the powerless who recognized their need for a savior like him. But he also had his anger under control when faced with the proud, hypocritical religious leaders of the day. Jesus was gentle. Look to him as your example of gentleness. He is both gentle and humble. Consider Philippians 2 again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. Instead of, instead of counting equality with God, he became a servant. The one who is worthy of being served, served others. He humbled himself to die in the place of those who were guilty in order to reconcile them back to God and to each other. Jesus brought about unity. We must look to him 
as our example as we see that walking in unity requires humility and gentleness. But there's also another characteristic listed there. Paul says, with patience. In our day of Amazon Prime same-day delivery, we have lost the ability to wait. We've lost the ability to be patient. In our relationships, are we patient with others, giving them time to fail, to learn, to develop? The word patience is often translated as long-suffering. It's the ability to tolerate the shortcomings of others who are in the process of being sanctified by God. Think about those who have been patient with you over the years. Think about those who are being patient with you currently. We must be patient towards others. And God, again, is the greatest example of patience. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God has held back his wrath towards those who sin against him in his kindness, in the richness of his patience, in order that we would repent. God is patient. He's patient with us. We must work on being patient towards others as God is working on them. How are you doing with being patient towards others, especially those who are difficult? And going along the same lines of being patient, Paul continues by saying, to bear with one another in love. This is a willingness to put up with someone even if they offend us. A willingness to put up with people who sin against us. There should be a, a willingness to not give up on them because we do it in love. It's pretty easy to just tolerate people. But it's a completely different thing to live with them in their mess, to walk with them in their weakness, to walk with them in their immaturity and do so in a way in which they feel valued and loved. I have to admit, this is hard. We often fail at it. I fail at it. I failed at it this week. But we must pursue growth in it. And with the Spirit's help, we will grow. And as we think about these characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, maybe the question could arise, doesn't this sound a little extreme? Or don't these sound a little passive and weak? Humility, patience, where's like the action? All of these qualities require strength. To refuse to exalt yourself isn't to be passive. 
It's actually to be strong enough not to require any attention or pampering. It means you have the maturity and ability to care for others. And living out these characteristics obviously should not allow for others to be selfish or irresponsible. Later on in this section, Paul actually speaks about speaking the truth in love and confronting others with their sin. But here we see qualities in which we need to grow in order to walk in unity with others. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. This is how we walk in unity. We can grow in these things as we consider what Jesus has done and how he calls us to follow in the same path. Because Jesus served not himself, but us, we are called to serve others. And so we have seen in this text the need of unity. We have seen the walk in unity, how we practically live these things out. And lastly, we will see the basis of unity or the foundation of our unity. Take a look at verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. These verses almost read like a creed or a confession. There's these seven one statements of belief that form the foundation for unity in the church. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul says that there is one body. He is speaking of the church. The second we become believers, we enter into this family. No matter what skin color, no matter what language we speak, social class we come from, we are part of this one body. There may be many different denominations and churches, but Paul is referring to the invisible church. Everyone who is in Christ is a member in this body, this one body. And we have the same head, Jesus Christ. He lists one spirit. This is in reference to the Holy Spirit. There aren't many spirits. There is one spirit and this spirit seals us. He gives us life. We have access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. This spirit, spirit brings about unity and dwells in us and changes us. There is only one spirit and there is only one hope. We have been saved, we've been adopted and we are being transformed by God's grace and we await the coming of our Lord Jesus in glory. We have this one hope of eternal life where we will share in that glory with him. There is one Lord. We all share the same Savior, Jesus Christ. 
There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the central message of the church. We have one Lord. There is one faith. We have the same way of salvation. There are not multiple ways to God. There are not multiple ways to eternal life. There is one faith. The only way to be saved is through believing in Jesus Christ. And one baptism. And while the church may differ on how or when baptisms are administered, we all should agree on the significance. There is one baptism. This baptism does not save you, but is a proclamation, a testifying of the salvation that already exists. It's a sign of saving faith. And then lastly, Paul lists one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is declaring God's supreme sovereignty, his omnipotence and presence in his creation. And did you notice as you were reading that, that you have the Trinity listed there? We, basically every song we sang in the service was about the Trinity. The Trinity is foundational for our unity. As the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, we are one in Christ. These should be things that unify us. This is foundational. These truths help us to see who we are united with and who we're not united with. There is a wider scope of Christians that we should be united with. Redeemer Fellowship is a Reformed Baptist church. We have certain distinctives that make us different from, let's say, a Presbyterian church. But in light of this creed that we see in verses 4 through 6, we should see that we have a unity with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. They agree on these things. And so all churches and Christians that agree on these foundational truths are fellow brothers and sisters. Think about this. Think about where we are meeting currently. In a Lutheran church's gym. Faith Lutheran Church sees the unity that we have in the gospel with them and is allowing Redeemer to meet in their gym and worship the same God. We're seeing unity played out right here. How amazing is that? But at the same time, we should never let our, the unity of our churches to be around anything but the gospel and the things that flow from the gospel. And yet we often find ourselves seeking unity founded on our preferences. Seeking unity on our opinions, such as political views, music styles, traditions, how we should school, you name it. Some of us seek out community within our churches with those we have much in common with and neglect those who are different from us, even though those people agree on the same important things, gospel things. The unity that we have in the gospel should push us 
to celebrate and learn from the diversity that we have in the church. Practically, this means to recognize that encounter with that guy who goes on and on and on about his political hobby horse after service, or maybe the couple who aligns themselves differently than you. Those interactions are good. They're God-intended doesn't mean that you have to abandon your own perspectives and opinions, but we are called to unity. We are called to listen and to love. So brothers and sisters at Redeemer, can you love fellow members who confess the same faith and yet differ over things such as politics, vaccination status, or how to handle the upcoming school year? Can you embrace brothers and sisters in Christ who may be at a different stage in life or maybe a different stage in their sanctification? If not, then our unity is founded on something other than the gospel. And we need to repent. When unity is built on personal preferences, that unity will crumble. But when we find our unity in sound doctrine, it will hold together and it will produce the ability to see the need for unity. And we will strive to walk worthy, to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving. And as David shared earlier on in the announcements, Jesus prays for this. Jesus prays for our unity in John 17. In verse 11, Jesus prays that his people would be one or unified just as he and the Father are one. The unity that, that exists between the Father and the Son is eternal and consists of a common purpose and mission. And then a couple verses later, verses chapter 20, or, uh, verses 20 through 21, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity that the church displays has an evangelistic purpose. Jesus prays that the watching world would see the unity of the church and see that he is God. Jesus prays for us to be unified. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. So in these short six verses, we have seen the need for unity. It's essential for the message that we proclaim. The world is watching us. We should be eager to maintain this unity that we have in Christ by the Spirit. We have also seen the walk of unity. Humility is needed because pride insists on getting its own way. Gentleness is needed because anger offends and harms people. Patience is needed because we cannot control the actions of others. 
Love is needed because it gives us the right motivation to do all these things. Keep in mind, our church communities, we are former enemies learning to love one another. We are natural born enemies. But God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, and he has made them one, which means he's done the same for us. And then we've seen the basis of unity. To be clear, the message isn't unity at any cost or unity for the sake of unity. That's why I was specific in saying for our sermon summary, our unity in Christ demands a unity. There is a specific unity demanded and needed. Unity does not mean sameness. In fact, it's achieved through the diversity that we have. It's a unity not based on personality or preference, but based on the shared faith that we have united in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. We were once dead in our trespasses, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. We who once were far off, God has reconciled us both to himself and to others and brought us near by the blood of Christ. He has made us one. We have unity with God and other believers because of Jesus' death on the cross. So let us maintain that unity, that unity that we already have. Maintain it by being humble, being patient, and loving towards those who believe. Are you walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Are you, do, are you doing the, your part to contribute to the unity of the church? Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of the unity that we have with you and with each other. Lord, we want to grow in these things. And so, Lord, we pray by the power of of your word and your spirit that you would do just that, that we would grow in unity and that the watching world would believe. In Jesus' name, amen.